0: Good morning. Our scripture reading from today comes from Luke twenty three, twenty six through 49. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. The people stood by, watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sun's light failed. returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and all the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: The musical Hamilton, written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, is truly a classic masterpiece. There are many moments that he captures that I think profoundly speak into my life and to your life, at the very the very breadth and depths of the human experience, and certainly the deepest contours of our grief. And One of the songs that I love most in this musical, he entitled, It's Quiet Uptown. And the song takes place in the second act of the musical, if you have seen it, and I trust you have, it's brilliant. And it describes Alexander Hamilton and his wife, Eliza, as they face their own relational heartache and ultimately the unimaginable grief the overwhelming grief of their son Philip in his death. Alexander Hamilton and his wife Eliza, as they walk through the street, reflect on everything in their lives and the overwhelming grief they've experienced and are experiencing. And I love how as they walk down the street, others feel the very shivering chill of their heartache and grief. And they say repeatedly, they are going through the unimaginable. The lyrics of It's Quiet Uptown brilliantly capture the unimaginable moment. Listen, there are moments that words don't reach. There is suffering too terrible to name. You hold your child as tight as you can and push away the unimaginable. The moments when you are in so deep. Now, Lin-Manuel Miranda's words not only describe, I think, brilliantly, the deep agony of our broken human experience, In a way, I also think they shadow the Gospel of Luke as he unpacks Jesus' crucifixion. There is a place that Luke takes us, a place where words don't reach and where suffering is simply just too terrible to name. And while Jesus' crucifixion is beyond words and unimaginable in its horror, Luke will open for us a hopeful window into the heart of King Jesus, What is King Jesus' heart really like? The answer to that question, Luke tells us, is for us to look carefully. And he invites us to look carefully at the cross and to see freshly what it reveals. On this barbaric instrument of unimaginable torture, Luke helps us to see God's unimaginable love for us. And if you have a Bible close to you or open, turn with me to Luke's gospel, chapter 23. It goes Matthew, Mark, and Luke, chapter 23. Now, as a church family, if you've been a part, we have been exploring together the gospel of Luke. It's brilliant and wonderful and challenging and transforming. And in a series we've entitled Rediscovering Jesus' Kingdom. In our text this morning, we are going to discover three unimaginable truths that the cross reveals to us of Jesus the crucified King. First, his unimaginable suffering. Secondly, his unimaginable forgiveness. And thirdly, ultimately, his unimaginable love. The first truth that the cross reveals to us is King Jesus endured unimaginable suffering for us. As Luke tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion, he repeatedly emphasizes that Jesus is completely innocent of all charges and crimes. Even though the evidence of Jesus' innocence is overwhelming, because of the pressure from the religious rulers and a stirred-up crowd, Jesus is flogged and led outside the city to Golgotha to be crucified. Now, the 2004 movie Passion of the Christ, produced by Mel Gibson and starring Jim Caviezel captures the physical torture Jesus endured in amazing ways. And if you've not seen it, I recommend it. Now, maybe not for small children yet, but if you're a little older, I think you should see it because as hard as it is to see it really beautifully, brilliantly, overwhelmingly captures the historical reality of what Jesus faced. For example, the lashing of the cat of nine tails left the flesh of Jesus clearly on his back, hanging like ribbons. His bones exposed, excruciating pain. The loss of blood is all over the crucifixion. Along with that, let's not forget that unlike our pictures we see of Jesus on the cross, Jesus experienced the humiliation in front of everyone of being completely stripped naked. And Jesus felt the pounding of the spikes, those big spikes in his arms and his legs. Designed by the Persians, crucifixion was creatively sadistically designed to produce the longest and most prolonging, agonizing, suffocating death. And this is what Jesus experienced. But what is surprising in Luke's account, unlike the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and John, Luke doesn't focus as much on the unimaginable physical suffering of Jesus. And rather, Luke primarily focuses on Jesus' heart for all the people around him. And of particular importance we're going to see to Luke is Jesus' response to those who even hate him. Now beginning in verse 26, Luke begins this storyline and he points out one particular individual, a man named Simon who is from Cyrene from North Africa and who is asked or forced into carrying Jesus' cross. Now don't you wonder with me what Jesus might have said to him. I do. I imagine Jesus looking at him and expressing through his loving eyes and the blood flowing down over his face a sense of overwhelming gratitude and kindness towards Simon. How that must have impacted Simon's life as he encountered, imagined the sinless son of God at that very torturous moment. But Luke doesn't spend a lot of time there with Simon. He moves on. And in our story, he moves from Simon the Cyrene next to this large group of people following Jesus. And we notice in the text that many are lamenting and mourning Jesus impending death, clearly. And Luke here absolutely chooses to record Jesus' words to them. What may seem surprising to us, but it is instructive for us, is where Luke is drawing our eyes, where he's drawing our heart, where he's drawing our attention to in the story. Notice, Jesus mourns for them because he knows the suffering they will soon endure When Jerusalem falls to Rome will be overwhelming. And at this torturous moment, isn't it something? Isn't it instructive? Isn't it overwhelming that Jesus is thinking of others suffering and not his his own? In other words, instead of rejecting the crowd, Jesus is reaching out to them. And in the anguishing crucible of Jesus, unimaginable physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering, Luke now focuses Imagine this, our attention on two individuals that surprise us. Two criminals that are being crucified next to Jesus, one on the right, one on the left. Look at verses 32 through 33. Two others, Luke writes, who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull or Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, Luke simply says, they crucified him. Now, there is so much packed into those three words. But let's remember, throughout Luke, and specifically in chapter 22, verse 37, just the chapter before, Jesus connects his march to the cross as the prophetic fulfillment of Scripture. In other words, there is a script being played out in the story. And the Old Testament prophet Isaiah of course, had foretold the Messiah's great suffering, the Messiah's great suffering for you and me, for us. And in Isaiah 53, 4 through 5, we read these words, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him, notice the language, stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes... Think of his flogging. We are healed. Now, Jesus' horrific suffering, while unimaginably unjust and unimaginably barbaric, to the biblical writers, is not random. It's not a mistake, nor is it purposeless. The gospel writers creatively, and Luke does, reminds us throughout the narrative of the passion, step by step, moment by moment, that Jesus' suffering is following this prophetic script under the sovereign guidance of the triune God and God's plan to rescue and restore a lost and broken and sinful world. Now contemporary English author, Edward Shalito, I love his language and his poetry. that focuses on the scars of Jesus and it captures, imagine this, the magnificence of God who birthed the foundations of the creator order, who stoops down as low as a criminal in order to recreate it. Now poetically, Edward Shalito captures this brilliantly. Listen carefully. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. The cross of King Jesus is a cross of suffering. And it declares that our God has wounds. Jesus suffered for us. And as the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus paid the price we could not pay. He covered the debt we could not cover. Now, isn't it interesting that Luke does not focus on Peter here? Another gospel writer focuses on John and other disciples clearly around the cross. And I find myself wondering what it must have been like for the apostle Peter to be there, to be witnessing Jesus' horrific suffering. You ever thought about that? Those closest to Jesus around the cross, and there were many of them, felt the greatest pain and sorrow. Can you imagine the regretful circumstances around Peter's cowardly denial that Luke has already told us, denial of Jesus, and how they must have continued to replayed through his head as with tears he saw his dear friend and Savior suffering on that cross? I think Peter recalls those dark, very dark hours of Jesus' crucifixion. and pre- Peter later, as an older man, writes about the meaning of Jesus' suffering. In 1 Peter 3.18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It's fascinating. The tradition tells us that Peter was martyred and he was crucified, but he asked to be crucified upside down how profound the crucifixion moment, the torture, the suffering, the love of Jesus was in Peter's life. And he writes about it in Scripture. Now, when we pause to look at the cross, we see ourselves, don't we, as those who put Jesus there. It was our sin that put him there, and it was his love, unimaginable love, that kept him there. We see the one who stayed on that cross, shedding his atoning blood for us, as a sacrifice for our sins. How could we not, and this is Luke's point, how could we not respond to such love with repentance, gratitude, and the most tender devotion to him as our Savior and Lord? As we follow historian Luke's literary progression in this story, you'll notice we observe Luke is doing more than just giving us the historical facts. He is doing that, but Luke is arranging these historical facts, in order to evoke emotion, to showcase Jesus' unimaginable response to those who are crucifying him. And particularly, again, his focus is on the two criminals being crucified on either side of him. Now look with me for a moment, because beginning in verse 34, we observe this second unimaginable truth. Not only Jesus' unimaginable suffering, but notice where the text goes. Jesus, King Jesus, now extends unimaginable forgiveness to us. Look at the verses 34 through 38. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. He is the Messiah, the Christ of God. He is the chosen one. You can almost just feel the sneering. And the soldiers, Luke says, also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, you save yourself. Huh. And Luke tells us, don't miss this, there was an inscription over him on top the cross, this is the king of the Jews. Now Luke recounts these jaw-dropping moments and drips in them vivid contrast and glaring irony. What do I mean by that? While some of the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' garments, the religious leaders are scoffing. He saved others, let him save himself, right? You claim to be the Messiah, so prove it. That's the idea. But the Roman soldiers also echo, kind of an antiphonal choir of hate. They mock him. And basically they say the same thing. If you're such a powerful king, show it. And the irony is that while Jesus is silent about his kingship, a whole bunch of people are speaking about him being king. This is intentional in Luke. Not only earlier we heard the rocks would cry out if Jesus would let them about his kingship, Jesus' enemies speak of his kingship both verbally and by written inscription on top of his cross. And the gospel writer tells us the inscription, the king of the Jews, was written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. In other words, it is written in so way that no one could miss who the king was. But King Jesus is a very different king. This king, King Jesus, forgives the unforgivable. And notice in verse 34, we read the shocking words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And one sense, of course they know what they're doing. They're rejecting Jesus, they're crucifying him. But in another sense, in their spiritual blindness, Jesus recognizes they do not see fully what they are doing. Yet Jesus knows, like the evil done to Joseph by his brothers in the Old Testament, if you remember that story, While Joseph says, while they clearly meant it for evil, a sovereign God allowed it for ultimate good. And here we have the same context. Jesus asked the Father to forgive all those around him. And by implication and alignment to the Father's will, Jesus extends this forgiveness as well. So Luke wants you and me to ponder as readers as we look at the cross and see what an amazing King Jesus is. What an amazing heart he has for the lost, the sinful, and the broken. Instead of rejecting those who hate him, those who ignore him, those who pounce on him, he forgives them. And instead of rejecting us, Jesus forgives us. And the question for us as readers is, have we experienced the life-transforming forgiveness in our life that Jesus offers? See, what is really true here and compelling across the terrain of time as there's nothing in your past or my past or your present or my present, nothing you have done or I have done, nothing that you or I should have done or nothing you and I did that we should not have done, right? That Jesus cannot or will not forgive if we will ask him with the true heart of repentance and faith. So let me ask you, where do you need to experience King Jesus' forgiveness in your life today? And will you seek him in forgiveness and find cleansing he offers you? The scriptures remind us that in 1 John, that God is faithful to forgive our sins. And and he says this in the scriptures. He says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all wrongdoing, all sin, all evil. This is a wonderful truth for us. And it transforms us. There are three words in the English language that are absolutely life-giving. What are they? They are, I forgive you. Whether that is hearing it from God or from someone we love, someone we care about. I forgive you is one of the most life-changing, life-giving ways we can communicate that. So when we experience Jesus' unimaginable forgiveness in our own lives, again, the scripture reminds us and Jesus reminds us that we are called to forgive others who have hurt us with their words or deeds. So let me ask you, who is Jesus calling you to forgive today? Who is Jesus calling you to forgive today? When we look at the cross, we not only see Jesus' forgiveness of us, we hear his call for us to forgive others. Seeing Jesus on the cross, we discover three unimaginable truths about our crucified King. We see how King Jesus endured unimaginable suffering for each of us. We see how Jesus extends his unimaginable forgiveness to us, but the crescendo of Luke's tapestry in this passion story is the third unimaginable truth. And here we see how Jesus expresses his unimaginable love for us. King Jesus not only forgives the unforgivable, what is so powerful in our story is he also loves the unlovable, the most unlovable. Luke showcases King Jesus' unimaginable love throughout his whole gospel to the most unexpected people. And here, in the Passion narrative, the most unlikely character, imaginable, who receives Jesus' love. Look at verses 39 through 42 with me. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. Like, in other words, he's saying, man, we're guilty. But this man is innocent. He has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today, today, You will be with me in paradise. What is amazing to us is the other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, sort of just kind of mention these two criminals. Luke is the only one who presses his literary lens into the verbal exchange of Jesus and the two being crucified with him. Luke wants us to see something really important here and that is the true heart of Jesus the King. His unimaginable love for the marginalized, for the lowliest, and for the most broken and discarded of society. This has been Luke's theme throughout his entire gospel and it reaches its crescendo right here and what society would view as the scum of scum of the earth. It's hard to imagine culturally anyone lower or more irredeemable in the eyes of culture in the first century than a criminal on a cross. But writing to the first century churches of Galatia, the Apostle Paul echoes a common cultural sentiment of how this criminal was viewed by everybody except Jesus. Paul quotes an Old Testament text, affirming that cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Yet here, Luke presents to us a criminal hanging on a cross, one deemed by everybody as beyond redemption, cursed, who becomes the recipient of the amazing, non-meritorious grace and unimaginable love of God. Amazing grace, huh? How sweet the sound. King Jesus responds with mercy here, doesn't he? Grace, love to the lowliest of the low, to the one criminal who will reach out for Jesus and plead for mercy and favor. And Jesus says to him, truly, I mean, this this is like absolutely, enthusiastically, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, it's fascinating that Jesus uses a word here to describe the afterlife, that is significant, it actually is of a Persian origin. Remember the Persian origin of crucifixion? This is a Persian origin that describes the most beautiful garden. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Well, we don't know for sure, but my hunch is, and Luke is doing this, I think, he's giving us an allusion to, this is a return to the pre-fall paradise of the Garden of Eden, or and or a glance forward to the New Jerusalem, that place Jesus is preparing for his disciples, the paradise garden city of the new heaven and new earth. Luke wants us to see right here, here at Golgotha, Golgotha's suffocating darkness, the hope-filled breezes of eternity that are blowing on this criminal as he breathes his last breath. Looking at the cross, the apostle Paul expresses the unimaginable love of King Jesus in Romans 580 says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loves the lost. He loves the broken. He loves every sinner of all kinds and stripes like you and like me. Now, seeing the heart of Jesus on the cross was transforming from Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning, several years, several years ago, wrote a wonderful book that I commend you called The Ragamuffin Gospel. But Brendan Manning's story is fascinating because as, while he was in seminary, he found himself greatly disillusioned with the Christian faith. And as he tells it, he was about to leave seminary, but one day he went to a chapel where worshipers were being led through the stations of the cross. And in his autobiography, All is Grace, Brendan Manning describes his conversion, yes, in seminary, to Jesus at the 12th station of the cross, where he kneeled down. And as he describes it, he focuses his attention on the painting of Jesus on the cross. A priest by him said these words to Brennan. Brennan, look at Jesus' blood running down his side, which was shed for you. Look at Jesus' eyes, which look on you with compassion. And hearing those words, Brennan recalls it was at that moment that he first encountered The heart of the love of God, the heart God had for him, for Brennan. This heart realization came over him, that Jesus had chosen him, that he had chosen the cross for him, and he is enraptured. And Brennan Manning describes, he stayed at that 12th station of the cross, looking at Jesus painting on the cross with his blood shed for him, and he describes being lost, enraptured. Overwhelmed, three hours, three hours in God's unimaginable love. Have you experienced Jesus' unimaginable love for you? Have you felt his remarkable delight? Maybe today you're struggling in your faith. I get that. I think we all have times like that. Perhaps you feel like you've sinned so much, made so many bad decisions, struggled with so many things, that at your heart of hearts, I mean, you hear that God loves you in your brain, but like, do you really feel God really loves you? Can God really love you anymore? And maybe God seems really distant to you right now. Maybe you feel deeply alone. Maybe you're in the midst of a crushing crushing crucible of very difficult and perplexing circumstances that seem to make no sense to you, and God seems hauntingly absent. Maybe it is a dark night of the soul for you. And perhaps in that dark night of the soul, there's a dark cloud of doubt and you are deeply wondering if God really loves you. If you are there, if you doubt whether God really loves you, whether God will be there for you, perhaps it's time to slow down and to take a closer look at the cross. Perhaps this week, may I encourage you to read slowly through the passion narratives of each one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as you do that, Slow down and ask God to reveal His love for you in unmistakable ways. For it's on the cross where King Jesus died for you, and it's there that God's love perhaps shines brightest for you. Will you let His love shine on you to the very depths of your heart? Will you let King Jesus' love wash over you? Dean Ortland has written a wonderful old book a year ago, about the loving heart of Jesus, and it's entitled Gentle and Lowly, and the subtitle is great. It's The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Does that make you want to read the book? I hope so. Dane writes these words, listen. The Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but one who is love. Merciful affections stream from his innermost heart as rays from the sun. Now, Dane goes on and says it so well. He says, those crevices of sin that we all have are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. Did you grasp that? His heart, Jesus' heart, willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost and he saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. And then Dane says this, we cannot sin our way out of his tender care. Let me say that again. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. This is the good news of the gospel, that our crucified King Jesus loves you more than you can ever fathom or imagine. His tender care and loving presence is there with you always. And instead of saving himself from the cross, Jesus saved us on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Jesus shed His blood for you and me. The Apostle Paul summarizes it brilliantly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, He, God the Father, made Him God the Son to be sin on our behalf, that's you and me, that you and I might become the very righteousness of God in Him by no works or merit of our own, period, but solely on the basis of Jesus' meritorious death on the cross and His death-defeating resurrection. Jesus, the King, the King of all kings, Creator and Redeemer offers you and me forgiveness of our sin and a brand new creation life when we in repentance and faith embrace Him as the true King, as our Savior and Lord. And if you've not embraced Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, would you do that today? Would you do that wherever you are? Do not let the evil one Whisper in your ear that Jesus really doesn't love you or that you do not matter or that you are unlovable. This I believe is Satan's greatest lie and most powerful weapon. Jesus loves you with an unimaginable love. His nail scarred hands prove that and they reach out to you. The question is, will you reach out to him? Will you, in repentance and faith, embrace his forgiveness and receive his love? One of the greatest hymns of the church was written by Isaac Watts in the 18th century. Isaac Watts was a brilliant scholar as well as a prolific hymn writer. And imagine this, he was credited to writing more than 750 hymns. Church history is often called the godfather of English hymnody. Many of Watts' hymns remain in use today around the globe and have been translated in many, many languages. But I want to suggest to you that perhaps his masterpiece of masterpieces flowed from the heart of Watts to his pen as he focused his attention on the cross of Jesus. And he pondered its transforming reality for the human condition and for his life. Watts' hymn is aptly titled when I survey the wondrous cross. This hymn beckons you and me to fix our eyes of faith on that cross. And Watt's words greet us, challenge us, transform us. As he writes, see from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love mingle down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns? Compose so rich a crown. When we gaze, when we stop from our busy lives, when we gaze at the cross, where King Jesus died, we see God's unimaginable love for us. And it's his love is what our hearts most long.